large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them from the greatest to the least put on a sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with a sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let the people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is, when I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish? I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down in a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant that with So that it withered when the sun rose, God provided scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I am so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend to it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? We've been meeting together like this for four weeks here at 10 o'clock, and I hope you've been, been encouraged by being all together in this room. It's fuller than it was when we were meeting at 9 and 11. And, and let me say, part of the reason for doing that is I wanted you to be an encouragement to each other. I wanted us getting together to remind you that God has been growing this church, that God is still active, that God is still doing things in this world. And as we've been meeting together, we've been working our way through the book of Exodus. We've been seeing what our God is like. We've been seeing his character to save his people. Over the last few weeks, we've been uh, looking at the kind of battle between God and Pharaoh. And we know the outcome of that battle, don't we? We know that God will prevail. We know that God is in control. We know that God will save his people. And I hope these these readings and these sermons that we've been looking at have been reminding you again and again that God saves. And I want you to see that it's the same God in Exodus that we worship today. He's still powerful. He's still saving people. The plan up until Friday afternoon this week, as Luella mentioned, was that John uh, Warner would visit and that he would uh, help us to see how God is still at work in the bush, that he's saving people in regional and rural Australia as well. Unfortunately, 
John's not with us today. He's not well enough, but John was going to be speaking from Jonah 4, and I've decided to keep working through that passage because, well, I think it helps us to see perhaps the other side of the coin in terms of God's character. Last week, Jack took us through the start of the plagues. Do you remember looking at that? We saw God's fierce power and his mighty acts of judgment. And so we know from Exodus what our God is like in terms of his role as a judge. And also in Exodus, we saw God revealing his name. He told Moses that he was, his name was Yahweh. You might remember me explaining to you what Andrew Reid suggested, how we understand that I am who I am, Yahweh. Or perhaps I am what I will do. And in the plagues, we saw God act. We saw what he was like. I wonder if you read through the plagues over the past week. My community group and I, we spent time reading through all of the plague narrative in Exodus this week and we saw God's acts of judgment. Today I want you to see also the other side of the coin, so to speak. Today I want you to see the compassion and the mercy and the grace of our God. I want you to know that our God is a God of judgment, but he's also a God of amazing compassion and love. We see in the book of Jonah, we see God relenting. We see his compassion. I imagine that most of you are pretty familiar with the story of Jonah, but just let me give you a very quick recap so that we're all on the same page. Uh, Jonah, you might remember, was called by God to go and preach to the Ninevites. But Jonah had other ideas. He starts to run away. In fact, he heads in the opposite direction. You know, if he was in Adelaide, for example, and God told him to go to Sydney... Well, actually, he jumps on a bus and heads to Perth, completely the opposite direction. He runs. There are actually no buses, of course, in Jonah's day, so he gets instead on a boat. And and not long after he's on board this boat, a big storm strikes. And the other sailors end up throwing Jonah overboard. He sinks down, down, down through the waves. And then he's swallowed by, you know, a giant fish. I remember last week we saw our God is the God of the plagues of frogs, that he's in control of creation. Well, here we see he's the God of a fish big enough to swallow a person who happens to be thrown over the side of a boat. Another reminder, our God is in control, isn't he? In control of creation, in control of the world. Three days later, that fish vomits Jonah up onto a beach. It's, it's a terrific story. I think if you've ever been to kids' church as a kid, you probably have looked at the story of Jonah. Three days after being spewed up onto the beaches, and he goes to Nineveh and he preaches, and what happens? The whole city repents. And really, that's probably what you remember of the story of Jonah, if you cast your mind back and think what happens in that story. But there is one more chapter in the story of Jonah, and that's the chapter we're looking at mostly today, chapter 4, and it's here that we see God's amazing compassion for the lost. When we get our heads around who the Ninevites actually are, we'll see that this is a really compassionate thing for God to do. John Warner wanted to speak about the uncomfortable compassion of our God, and I think what he meant by that is this is the sort of compassion that we think is undeserved. Before we dig into chapter 4, I want us just to focus a a little bit on chapter 3. Because in chapter 3, I think we see what God wants from people. We see that he wants our hearts. 
In chapter 3, Jonah heads to Nineveh. He goes a day's journey into the city. It's a very big city, obviously. He can walk in a day. And when he's in there, he preaches. And he, he tells of the destruction that's coming to the city. And what I want you to do in your Bibles, if you've got them open, is have a look at uh, verse 6 of chapter 3 of Jonah. This is what it says. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And you just think about the king's response here to Jonah's preaching just, just for a moment. It's a messy response, isn't it? He gets down in the dust, he, he puts on sackcloth, and he decrees that others do likewise. The king's responding in a really fully orbed way, isn't he? Don't eat or drink, instead call out to God. Have a think about how different this is to the king in Egypt that we've been reading about. How different this is to the way in which Pharaoh responds when Moses speaks to him. When Moses told Pharaoh to let the people go, how did Pharaoh respond? He says, I don't know the God you're talking about. But the king in Nineveh, how does he respond? It looks like his heart's changed, isn't it? He bows down, he gets down into the dust and his response is full and it's deep. And I reckon this is what God wants from us in a way. He wants us to follow him, to call out to him, to trust in Jesus as our Lord and as our Saviour, not just at a surface level, but to let it get down into the deep, into the core of us, into our hearts. It might be uncomfortable. But I think this is what God wants from us. He wants our hearts. And then look how God responds to the way that the king of Nineveh behaves. Let me read from verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. God relents. I'm so thankful to John for choosing this passage for us to read this week because when we compare this to what we've been looking at Exodus and the plagues, can you see the, kind of the other side of the coin? The same God we're talking about here. In Exodus, we see him revealing what he's like, revealing his name through his mighty acts of judgment, through what he does. And in Jonah, we see his compassion and his mercy. Right, so we've seen God relent, kind of point one. Point two is that Jonah sulks, doesn't he? And he's a good sulker. Do you, do you know a sulker? Is there one in your household? There's something at the time, isn't there? Something deliciously self-righteous about a good, a good sulk. And Jonah seems to be pretty good at it. I picture Jonah here with crocodile tears, sniffly nose, a bit of foot stamping, some passive aggressive comments, a bit of the silent treatment. It's not in the text, that's just personal experience speaking, right? (laughs) 
Now, what is in the text is Jonah's anger towards God. In verse 2 of chapter 4, he's, he's angry at God. He says, he prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. At this point, we should be wondering a little bit why Jonah feels this way. Jonah's job, wasn't it, was to go and to preach to the Ninevites. He's done that. He's only said a few words, at least a few words that are recorded here. And the whole city has responded positively. His preaching mission has been a roaring success. Everyone's listened. And for a prophet, that's kind of unheard of, isn't it? love the way that Tim Keller explains this in his little book on Jonah. He says, would an artist be angry when a prominent museum accepts their art for installation? Or do musicians get angry when the audience give them a standing ovation? Jonah's just preached to the toughest audience in his life and every last one of them has responded positively. So why does he become angry? I think it's because Jonah doesn't think the Ninevites are worthy of God's compassion. That might be a bit difficult for us to understand today because living in Australia and living in polite Adelaide, most of us don't have enemies, do we? So let me say, remind you of something that happened back in 2020. On the 1st of February that year, a group of young children went off to go and get some ice cream. It was one of the first outings that this group of children had made without parental supervision as they walked along a footpath a car driven by a drunk and drug affected driver mounted the curb and struck that group of kids and killed four of them and three others were injured it was horrendous terrible thing to have happen you might remember it happening how, how do you feel about that driver how do you feel about that person Four kids dead. Is that driver deserving of compassion and mercy? Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. These people were the enemies of Israel. Now, it probably comes after the time that Jonah was written, but you might remember that with their king Sennacherib, they defeated the whole of the northern part of Israel and they had Jerusalem, their capital, laid in siege. Terrible destruction. Now, we don't have enemies like this in Australia do we but we do know of suffering and we do know of pain what do we want for people who do terrible things like the driver of that car we want judgment don't we and that's right in a way judgment's good and our God is a God who judges what does Jonah want for Nineveh I think he wants judgment too I think he wants punishment Strike them down, send in the frogs, call in the boils, those sort of things, right? Let me keep reading chapter 4, verse 2. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is why I tried to foresee by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah runs, I think, from God, not simply because he doesn't want to go on mission, but because he doesn't want to go on mission to his enemies. I think he felt that going on mission would mean that God would do what he's promised to do. 
that he'd work powerfully. If I were called to go on mission, I reckon I'd be worried that the years of work that I would do just would not bear fruit. For Jonah, his work bears fruit instantly. That's what he's worried about. He's worried about God being gracious and compassionate. And interesting for us, as we work our way through the book of Exodus, Jonah here is is kind of quoting Exodus, isn't he? He's speaking of Exodus chapter 34, which reminds us where it says, You are gracious and compassionate, God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. I think we think God's not supposed to have compassion on people like the Ninevites. And yet that's what our God's like. This is the heart of God. If if you're here today because you wanted to get to know what God is like, I want you to come back to these verses in Jonah. But I'd encourage you to read Jonah from start to finish. It doesn't take too long. It's only a four-chapter book. You'll see the grace and the compassion and the mercy and the love of our God. So often I think we have this picture, don't we, of God as a crotchety old man who's just wanting to pounce on our every mistake. God institutes a set of rules that take the fun and the pleasure out of life. But here we see a God who's gracious and compassionate, abounding in love and faithfulness, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. How does Jonah feel all about this? Well, it destroys him, doesn't it? He's so angry with God that he wants God to take his life. Jonah doesn't want God to save these people. He wants God to judge them. Now, it's difficult for us to understand, but imagine how you would feel if you lived in a place like Ukraine. Let me ask you a question. Is this how you see our God? Do you see our God as a God who is overflowing with mercy? I'm not sure that I have some of the same problems that Jonah has. But I do think I need to keep seeing God as merciful and God as compassionate. I think I'm more likely today to get angry with God for not acting. Perhaps angry at God for not saving a friend that I've been praying for. Wondering why he's not acting. Maybe you've become jaded towards God because you've lost confidence in his mercy. I'm probably more likely to sulk over the thought that people think our God today is no longer relevant in our world or no longer active or no longer big enough. Jonah is angry because God is demonstrating mercy to those who don't deserve it. And while that drives Jonah mad, it warms my heart. Because if God could forgive Nineveh, that means he can forgive me also. I know some of you well, some of you a little less well. But here's my guess that amongst all of us today, there are a few of us who are sitting here today feeling the weight of guilt or shame. Maybe you're thinking back over something that's happened in the past few days or or maybe something that's happened in the past few years and you're weighed down by that i want you to see today that our god is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in love and if he can forgive nineveh if he can turn away from judgment on nineveh if he can forgive jonah then he can forgive you also 
And yet God's mercy and God's heart for the city of Nineveh, it frustrates Jonah, doesn't it? In verse 5 of chapter 4, we see Jonah stay back to kind of watch what happens over the city. Do you ever wonder why he stays back? I reckon he's sitting there waiting to see if God will continue to relent or if the punishment actually will start to happen. Because his work's already done, isn't it? He's preached his message. He could have gone home, but he stays back. Maybe he's hoping that he will see the judgment that will come. And what happens, though, is Jonah gets a shelter, doesn't he? God makes a shelter for him. And a lesson starts for Jonah in that. God, in his sovereignty, causes this plant to grow up over Jonah. It provides shade and comfort for him in the heat. And finally, we see something that makes Jonah happy. It's taken four chapters to get there. He's now resting in the shade of this plant, and he's waiting, I think, for Nineveh to fall, for Nineveh to be smited to dust. But the next day in the story, God sends a worm that chews the plant and causes it to wither. And Jonah's no longer protected by the shade of this plant. And again, he's angry with God. And he reverts to his previous attitude of wanting to die, angry with God again. I reckon there are a number of ways of understanding the purpose of the plant in this story. But, but I just want to ask a question. Did Jonah deserve that plant? Did he work for it? Was it his rightful thing? I reckon the answer to that's no. And I think neither does Jonah deserve God's favour. Sure, he's part of God's chosen people, but, but this is due to God's choosing, not Jonah's work or not Jonah's merit. Jonah's where he is because of the grace and mercy of God. The same can be said of us today, can't it? Do we, those of us who are here within these four walls today, do we deserve the inheritance that's coming to us if we call Jesus our Lord and Saviour? As co-heirs with Christ, do we deserve those things? Is our inheritance the, the reward for, for getting up early on Sunday morning and putting up with a slightly off-key singing sometimes? Or is it coming into church and working in kids' ministry? No. The truth is that like the people of Nineveh, we're also deserving of God's judgment and his wrath. Lots of places we could go to in the Bible to see that, but uh, one of the most well-known places is to go to Romans 3. Let me just remind you of the first few words of Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, Romans makes it pretty clear that you and me, all of us are sinners, that we all fall short of God's glory. That's you, me, Jonah, and the city of Nineveh. None of us deserve what God offers. None of us have earned it. And that's what makes God's character of compassion and grace so lovely. Jonah doesn't deserve any of this. He's, he's reluctant and he's a disobedient prophet, and yet God provides for him provides a leafy plant and makes it grow up over Jonah to give him shade for his head and to ease his discomfort. And I think God uses this little lesson to show Jonah about his abundant compassion. God is compassionate, and that's contrasted with Jonah's selfish arrogance. You care about a plant, God says, a plant you neither tended nor sowed. God says, I care about Nineveh city of 120,000 people. 
Now, John was going to be here today explaining to us a little bit about Bush Church Aid and, and the work that they're doing to, uh, across Australia. He was going to be introducing us to a, a family who live and work in Alice Springs, who work with First Nations people. And I've got to say that rural and regional Australia, it's a bit of a blind spot for me in terms of what's God, what God is doing there. I was looking forward to hearing John speak about that. He'll be back in a few months' time to, to, to fill us in on those things. But here's the thing, isn't it? The people in the bush, they don't deserve the gospel any more or any less than us. They, like us, are sinners in need of a comp- the compassion of God. But how are they here? Unless someone tells them about the gospel. How they know about the compassion of our God unless they're introduced to the person of Jesus. As I finish up today, I want to just remind you about the person of Jesus. It's with Jesus that I'd like to finish on with you today. And I want to ask you, have you ever thought about Jesus as being an emotional person? Or what are the kind of emotions that you think characterize Jesus? As we've worked our way through the book of Jonah, a little, just a little bit today, we've seen, haven't we, the compassion and the mercy and the grace of God on display for us. And I want to suggest that we see compassion and grace and mercy as emotions also in the person of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 9, we see Jesus looking at crowds of people, crowds of people who are like sheep without a shepherd, he says, and he has compassion on them. Well, think about how Jesus behaves when he rides into the city of Jerusalem. He weeps for it. And when Jesus encounters those with physical ailments, he he shows concern and he heals them. But even more so, he's distressed by sin in the world, isn't he? As we read about Jesus in the Gospel accounts, we see his compassion for those who are poor and unwell but his greater sense of compassion is for those who are lost, for those who don't know him or his father. That's the compassion he has for Jerusalem, and he weeps over that city. We're meeting together as one church at 10 o'clock at the moment, I hope, to encourage each other, to remind each other that God's still at work in this world. And I'm hoping... That will help us have energy to look at the world around us. To remember that most of the people outside of these walls, most of the people in our lives, they don't know about our God. They don't know about his grace and mercy and his actions in and through Jesus. Our world needs to hear the message of the gospel, doesn't it? I want it to take root in their hearts and ours. I'm going to pray that we keep being able to do that today and into our week. You pray with me? Father, we thank you for the story of Jonah, which helps us to see your character a little more clearly as a God of compassion, mercy, and grace. Thank you that we see these things in the person of Jesus as well. Father, as we meet together as one church at 10 o'clock, we pray that you'd help us to encourage each other to put fuel in our tanks that we'd be able to use in the week as we share the good news of who your son is with those who you place in our path. Amen.